through science and through awareness, programs have been put in place. We do learn by our mistakes. This week I'm very proud and happy to say that my guest is Dr. Ann Cohen, who is a stellar scientist in her own right, and I'm also proud to say a friend of mine and a collaborator. We're working together on a couple of things, so welcome, Ann. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to have you. Just to kick off so our audience knows, if you could just give me in your own words your profession, where you're from, and where you work right now. I consider myself a scientist, an oceanographer, a curious person, mm -hmm. somebody who really wants to understand and know about the world and how it works. Luckily, um, I have a job to do just that. <laughs> you got a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I found one at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Um, I've actually been there for about 25 years. I came as a postdoctoral oh, scientist um, from South Africa. And um, I loved it so much that I, I decided I wanted to stay and, and luckily uh, they would have me. I just want to take a pause here on the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution because in the world of science, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution is, is like the Mecca. It's like the Vatican. It's like the place. And I'm honored to say that I'm on the, your board of governors, uh, which I actually have to pinch myself when I realize that because I'm from Boston, you know, originally. And it was almost like I was a kid, you know, almost like a young poor Catholic kid looking through the gates of the Vatican once in a while, and that was the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And now I'm inside. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, I was there last week with you, and I'm, uh, I'm able to walk the halls and look at the pictures of the strange animals on the walls, and, and everybody I see, even if I've never met them, I know them because they're part of our culture, they're part of the oceanographic culture, and there's, there's a certain way oceanographers look, ocean scientists look. They're usually pretty casually dressed. Most of the guys have beards. Everybody's kind of in a good mood. T-shirt is considered a suit, <laughs> a dressed up suit. And uh, you are at really the pinnacle of oceanography. However, there are a couple of others out there. So uh, anybody listening at our front that is from Scripps or from uh, Rutgers or from the Japan Marine Science Technology Center and a few others, please don't take it the wrong way. But Woods Hole really does stand out. So you you come from, from quite a place. You mentioned you're from South Africa, and that's pretty cool. What brought you to, to the United States? How'd you get here? What was your journey? That's quite a story, actually. So um, w when I was growing up, I had there were two loves in my life, ballet oh, that's right. and the ocean. Wow. And I really wanted to be a ballerina, huh. um, but my mother decided that that was not a career for me. <laughs> and so she encouraged me, as she did with all my siblings, um, to go to university and study and, and get a degree. And so when it came time to choose what I wanted to do, um, it was pretty easy, actually. Um, I, I was interested in oceanography, uh, marine biology. I spent a lot of time when I was little um, playing in rock pools, intertidal rock pools with mm -hmm. my friend Fiona. <laughs> we used to uh, study the sea anemones and put our fingers in them and mm. wait for the anemones to close. Me too, yeah. And then we'd I like squish that. the periwinkles and feed them to the anemones. And, I remember that. Um, so it wasn't a difficult choice for me. And then in my third year zoology class, my um, professor John Field um, had us read a paper that was by a scientist who was at Woods Hole Oceanographic what Institution. Um, I don't That's remember right. the right. name of That's the right. scientist, yeah. but I remember uh, discussing the paper with Professor Field and 
learning more about Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And like you, I saw it as this like mecca <laughs> of oceanography and mecca mm. on a hill. And as I went through my graduate studies, I learned more and more about it. Um, in the last year of my PhD, I told my advisor that I needed to go to a um, meeting in Beijing because that was where my people were. You and mean you, the, the specialists of, and, yes. and what was that topic you were studying? It, it was the conference on quaternary research because what I was doing, for my, what I did for my PhD was actually use mollusk shells uh, to reconstruct the history of the oceans around You call it quaternary research? What was it? Qu quaternary. Quaternary. Oh, quaternary yes. is in the geological term. That's okay. correct, yeah. Quaternary meaning a large period of time, right? Yes. Qua okay. Which yeah. includes today. Which includes today. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And mollusks were a good a good way good to study proxy. that because they make good fossils, right? Well, uh, all around the southern yeah. African coastline, there are archaeological sites from hunter-gatherers that lived there for 500,000 years. And right. they used to collect the mollusks and eat them and then discard the remains right. in piles outside of the caves that they were living in. Right. And these piles just accumulated and accumulated over time. Right. And then archaeologists went back and dug through them and then you know, that just presented a record of the ocean uh, for the past several hundred thousand years. And I was really lucky in my PhD that my advisor was flexible as to what I could study. Wow. And so I decided that that was what I wanted to do. So you were studying, I think they're called middens, right? Yes. Middens, which are piles of debris that human, old human groups or societies put their debris and I know that uh, in the Northeast, where I grew up, we have Indian middens, which have shell, clam shells that go back. But you were studying mm -hmm. middens that went back 500,000 years? Yes, there were, really? there were several hundred thousand years Of people old. that yes. were living by the coastline yes. in South Africa, our ancestors. Were yes. we homo sapiens by then? Um, yes, we very were. much so. Do you think that we, we might want to? I'm not sure about 500,000. I think okay. it's several hundred thousand. So it was a while ago. Yes, a while ago. Yes, a while it was ago. a while ago. So these. Don't quote me on the 500,000. Uh, don't worry, we won't hold you on that number. But it was a long time ago. And were these species that you found, the shells, were they from the intertidal zone or were they from beyond the intertidal zone? In other words, were the people swimming and diving into the ocean to get them or were they picking them up along the shoreline? They were intertidal species. So they okay. were very accessible okay. um, at low tide. All right. But it shows that our relationship with seafood goes back a very long time. Oh, yes. I was able to utilize shells from middens all around the coast. Wow. I was an article in Scientific American recently about a physical anthropologist that found some caves in Mossel Bay with these middens. That's correct. And in the article, he argued that this was during a natural climate shift in Africa. Uh, in this case, it was 70 to 100,000 years ago when it was really hot in the interior. And he postulated that it was that the human tribes at the time made their way to the coastline to find new habitat, and they found the ocean. And they found seafood. They found uh, a place to live in the caves. And the, the, of course, the seafood was, was abundant. It was easy to get. You didn't have to go hunting it. Yeah. You, could, you could gather it. You could collect it. Nice, safe caves to live in. You also had the ocean, which could have provided a way to get away from predators, mm -hmm. right? Back then, big cats were after us. Uh, and in this case, you could run into the ocean. Of course, you had sharks in the ocean, so you had to sort of balance the, the back and forth. But, but that's they wouldn't have had to go that far because these, shell, these shellfish just live in the intertidal zone, and they're plentiful. So there would have been plentiful. And lots of different species. And also very nutritious, right? Oh, yes. In fact, some colleagues of mine, when I was doing my PhD, were studying the isotopic composition of the bones of the people who left the shells. 
okay. uh, and found that um, they were actually eating mostly shellfish. Really? Yeah. The isotopic composition, and that means that you can look at the bones of the people and determine what it is they ate to make those bones, right? Yes. And you can then trace it right back to the seafood. You are what you eat. You are what you eat, exactly. And today we, today we all acknowledge that seafood is a good thing to eat for our hearts, low fat, high protein. Well, so getting, yummy. And very yummy. In fact, you could argue it's our, one of our native foods, right? It's ingrained in us. Yeah. So you were studying this, and you went to China, and then you ended up getting a postdoc or something at the Woods So Hole. I went to China. Yeah. And I think you have to understand, at the time that I grew up in South Africa, South Africa was very isolated from the rest of the world because of apartheid. Of course, yeah. So I grew up under apartheid. Okay. Yeah. Um, and South African scientists and students actually were not allowed to That's right, yeah. participate in many international conferences because of that. I remember that, yeah. So for me to go to Beijing to this meeting was quite a big deal. It was actually the first... Uh, time I'd ever really traveled internationally on my mm, own. Mm. So I arrived in Beijing completely starstruck by this huge meeting with all these scientists that I only knew from their publications and they were like gods to me. <laughs> um, and now you're like gods to the younger <laughs> students, I know that. But anyway, keep and going, yeah. I gave my presentation and I, and I, and I actually I did a really good job. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> I did a really good job. I was so proud of myself. And then Lloyd Kegwin, who was the scientist from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, whose work I knew through publications, came to me after my talk and he said, why don't you apply to Woods Hole for a postdoctoral fellowship? So I did. And it was the only application that I made uh, for a postdoc. <laughs> but that, that wasn't so easy because I was actually engaged to be married. <laughs> I was engaged to an ornithologist. Okay. And so me leaving to go to America was kind of a big thing. Anyway, I did go. Um, I followed my dream. Um, and I've been there ever since. You and I both have international backgrounds. We both study the ocean and love the ocean. And our work has brought us together studying coral reefs mm -hmm. <laughs> in the South Pacific. I was wondering if you could, for our audience, tell us, you know, what is a coral reef? I think of a coral reef as a world. A world, okay. As almost a planet that has every single kind of creature living on it that you can imagine. And it exists because the corals built it. So once there was nothing, mm -hmm. and then a coral came along, a baby coral settled on an ancient volcano or on um, a coastline that didn't have a reef before, and started growing and dividing and growing bigger and making babies and creating with their skeletons a structure, almost like a city, mm -hmm. for other organisms to live in. You know, for those people who don't know, what is a coral? It's very closely related to sea anemones okay. and also jellyfish. Yeah, yeah. But the difference between corals and sea anemones, which you know from the movie Nemo, right, Nemo right. lives inside a sea anemone. Right, right. The difference between them is that corals produce calcium carbonate, mm -hmm. and they, they use that calcium carbonate to make a skeleton. So this beautiful piece that you brought today yeah. is the skeleton of lots and lots of coral, individual coral animals. It's like uh, a rock. It's like a rock. I guess geologists would call it soft rock because yeah. it's calcium carbonate. But it's not a rock in the sense that you have to have an animal to produce this. Right. So what the corals are doing, so day in and day out, 24 hours a day, is they're producing calcium carbonate crystals. 
Is our, our bones are calcium carbonate too, right? They are. Our they, bones they, are. Well, uh, they're hydroxyapatite. Hydro okay. Calcium phosphate. Calcium phosphate. But calcium carbonate are the basis of what a coral animal makes. And to the casual eye, it does look like a rock. But it's, look it's, closely. What do you see? You see. There's so much structure in you there. You see so much beautiful structure. Yeah. And that's where the soft part of the animal lived, right? The yes. soft part, like you said, it's related to a sea anemone, which is soft. But in this case, the sea anemone takes the calcium out of the water, right? It and takes then it, the calcium and, then it, and the carbonate, and, the carbonate, and it joins and then it them together. Joins them together, and, and it, it makes grows this crystals. Grows crystals. And it organizes lives. those crystals in a very special way. Right. It's not just all higgledy piggledy. It's not just higgledy piggledy. No. no, it's very structured. Organizes them in a very special like a city, way. Like a city. And then the first step is to create a home for itself. Yeah. So each one of those rings that you see there, mm -hmm. that's a home for one coral polyp or coral animal. Mm -hmm one little sea anemone-like creature. Mm -hmm. It builds that for itself so that it has a place to live. The animal can actually contract into Inside. its little home to get, a, protected. To get protection. Yep. And then together, the whole colony, which mm -hmm. is lots and lots of those little polyps living together. And they're all the same animal, right? They're all clones the of clones the original of the same one. animal. Okay. Yeah. So how big can they get and how old can they be? Oh, goodness. Huge. I mean, they can get seven meters high. Right. Corals like this, the yeah. massive forms, Yeah. they can live to a thousand years old. Thousand years old. Yeah. Okay. What else is in a coral reef besides this coral? When I think of the coral reef, the reef part is the structure. That's uh, the stony part we just talked about. So where, when there was once like a flat yep. substrate, um, the corals will come in and c colonize yep. the substrate. And they start to grow. Yep. And start to grow and sort of join they create together. create structure. Yep. Yep. And there's different kinds of corals. There's branching corals and platy corals. Dozens, hundreds of varieties. Corals yep. And yep. Every, every single yep. shape that you can imagine. Yep. 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 Corals do that. That's actually yeah. one of the things to me that's so exciting about corals. Yeah, yeah. You've got starfish are there yes. sort of moving around. You've got crabs. You've got fish that some of them will eat the coral. Some of them will use the coral to hide from other fish. You've mm -hmm. got worms. The coral like creates the stage upon which all the other animals come in then are actors, right? So you don't have the other animals unless you have this incredible, amazing, calcium carbonate, hard coral that creates this pantheon of life that people usually think of. When they think of a hot tropical place and they look through that water, they see all those colors and they see the fish, there's coral underlying it all, then there's fish that live yeah. on and around it. The world today, of course, is dominated by humans. We are everywhere now. What do people do that harms coral? When we develop the land next to a coral reef for hotels or for agriculture, um, it has tremendous impact on the reef next door because a lot of the sediment or pollution that's generated on land gets carried onto the reef. And coral reefs are very sensitive uh, to sedimentation, to pollution. Road building, for example, when you, if we clear uh, vegetation to build a road, the soil is no longer locked in right, uh, right. by the vegetation. It's loose now, so the next rainstorm all the soil gets washed over onto the coral reef. And corals get smothered. Um, you know, just, just like people do in landslides, corals get smothered too. Now, globally, corals are having a hard time. I believe that I've heard that some 20 or 30% of coral reefs globally are in very, very bad condition, might even be dead. Another 20 or 30% are highly threatened to actually becoming destroyed or dead. We gotta watch out. There, there's, there's issues here. But I, I do wanna say that there have been um, you know, communities who live on coral reef islands uh, and coral reef nations and conservation organizations and other NGOs 
I think there's tremendous um, advance and progress in, in, in managing coral reefs for those local stresses. And I, and I want to say that because, you know, 25 years ago, I think the situation was quite different. Okay. But through science and through awareness, programs have been put in place. That's great. Huge programs have been put, put in people place. People are paying attention to what they're people doing locally. People are paying attention. Yeah. We do learn by our mistakes. Things like putting an anchor in near a good dive site so that when yes. people come to dive it, they don't throw an anchor out every time. They tie up to the mooring that someone's put in place. When a new hotel comes in, exactly. they're actually advised, don't let your nitrogen uh, that you've used to fertilize your golf course go into the ocean. Instead, you know, have it run the other way. I agree with you, and I think we've made tremendous advances there. I think the reason is that people have begun to recognize the value of coral reefs. And what are those values? Well, any person who wants to build a hotel at a coral reef ecosystem knows that that's what's going to attract the tourists. The tourism industry, you know, reaps billions of dollars uh, from coral reef-based tourism. But there are hidden benefits to coral reefs as well that are only just being recognized and quantified. Like what? And one of the biggest is coastal protection. Okay. So coral reefs fringe coastlines. And where they do, or they line coastlines. And where they do, they absorb 97% of the energy of the ocean. Okay, so, so if you have a storm than, come through, instead of the waves running up on shore and knocking someone's house down, the, the, coral, the reef coral will absorb, absorb that, that energy. for us. Yeah. We've seen a lot of images of natural harbors along coastlines that are, that are created by the fact that a coral reef is there. So, you know, beautiful yachts anchored in the harbor. And the reason the beach is there is because the corals on the fringing reef and on the barrier reef are protecting that Absolutely. Coastline. You know, I never mentioned this to you before, but you remember the big Boxing Day tsunami that hit Indonesia and Thailand back mm. in 2004? Of course I do, yeah. Well, I went in three months afterwards under National Geographic sponsorship to survey the reefs to find out whether a healthy reef actually mitigated some of the tsunami mm. damage, and it did. Mm. We found that the areas where the reefs were in good shape there was less damage on land because the complexity, the actual presence of the reef absorbed some of the wave energy before it had a chance to get to where the people were. The other value of the coral reefs, so of course, is food, right? Yes, of course. And uh, a lot of coral reefs are in parts of the world where people actually depend on the ocean for their food. It's places where they, like, they don't even have electricity. So the ocean is like the, I, in Kiribati, and I want to come back to that country here in a moment with you. A friend of mine there told me that the, the ocean was their refrigerator because they didn't have one. And instead of pulling a, a fresh piece of fish out of the refrigerator every day, they'd go out to they'd the reef pull it out of the ocean. and they'd pull it out and eat it. So food for uh, a- That's a great a, story. Uh, yeah, it's a good way yeah. to look at it, isn't it? And this is an area in the world where people don't have a lot of money. So they need, the, they need a healthy environment to keep themselves alive and, and to feed themselves. So the reefs provide protection from storms. They provide food. We need a healthy ocean too, even though we don't depend on coral reef fish. But every time we go into the supermarket and right. choose a fish, it came from or a shrimp or a, a crab, it came from the ocean too. And if the ocean's not healthy, it's not going to be able to support that 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 appetite. Yeah. It can't support that supermarket. The other threat that the the reefs of the world have, and the whole ocean has, is the fact that uh, our climate is changing faster now than it has in a very, very long time, and it's getting warmer. And these reefs are uh, particularly sensitive to this heating. 
They exist in warm water to begin with, but as we heat the atmosphere from greenhouse gas emissions, you know, that heat gets translated into the ocean at the atmospheric ocean interface, and then the animals in the ocean have to deal with this heating and it's the corals that I want to talk to you about and what's happening to them from this heating. A, what happens to coral reefs when the ocean gets warm? And B, what is it that you're finding out about it? And what does that mean and what can we do? It's become pretty clear that we are warmer now than we've ever been in the past maybe million years. Yeah. There may have been coral reefs a million years ago or two million years ago that were adapted to warmer temperatures. Right. But the ones that we Ours have today. Ours are not. Right. The ones we have today. The ones that we care about, the ones that we depend on, the ones that 500 million people around the world or more. need. Right. Their refrigerator in the ocean, the food. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, Their livelihoods. Right. It's, they evolved right. in cooler temperatures. Cooler temperatures. Right. Their machinery, their body machinery, right. was evolved to deal with cooler temperatures than right. what we're seeing today. One thing we didn't talk about earlier was that when we were talking about how reefs are made and who makes the reef and who's there, is the fact that the, the coral animals. They farm, they're farmers. They're, yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> you could think of them as farmers. Yeah, they don't live alone. Right, they don't live alone. They don't live alone. Inside of their cells are little. Little plants. Little plants, single-celled algae yep. that we call zooxanthellae. And they do that miraculous photosynthesis where they, they create sugar. That's correct. Right. Yeah, they use sunlight and nutrients from the ocean and some of it from the coral. Right. They actually use coral pee uh, to make nutrients. I didn't know that, really. Yeah. The corals pee it's a, it's to fertilize the garden. Exactly. Okay, so there's like a little garden living inside the coral and they pee in it. <laughs> and then the, then the algae or the, the plant makes sugar, right? And then the coral eats the sugar, or absorbs the sugar through the... Exactly. Through, okay. Just like plants on land, yeah. the little okay. algae that live inside the coral yeah. cells fix carbon. Yeah. So they're actually making carbon molecules. Right. Glucose. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Right? Exactly. And, yeah. then they, and then the coral kind of presses on them to hand over the... Hand over. Hand, hand over, over the, the goods food. now. Give me the goods yeah. now. I peed on you. Give me the, give yeah. me the food. I'm giving you what you need, <laughs> but you give me what All I right. need. All right. The food that the corals get from those little symbionts is super, super important. Um, it provides maybe 75% of their metabolic needs, of their energy that they need to live, to breathe, to reproduce. Amazing. That's coming from the stuff that the little symbionts That's are making. Amazing. Yeah, and the rest of it they pull organic material out of the water and eat yeah. it like, like okay. Well, you know, corals, uh, like sea anemones, they have tentacles. The tentacles, yeah, and those grab. And I don't know if you, like me as a kid, you stuck your finger in the sea yeah. anemone and got yeah, yeah, stung. Yeah, yeah, You feel a little sting, yeah. They yeah. do the same thing. The, so the corals have those stinging cells But up to well. 75% actually come from the plant. Wow, yeah. that's a lot, yeah. Uh, that's on average. On average, It yeah. varies. So this relationship between the coral and these plants that live inside them, Yeah. It has to evolve as well. You, know, you right. can't just stick a foreign animal into a foreign thing, organism, into your cells and just right. keep going. Right. Uh, this is a relationship that has evolved over thousands, m millions of years. And the corals that grow the reefs today, mm -hmm. that all those people depend on, we depend on, they evolved a relationship with their symbionts 
under temperatures that are cooler than today. Right. And it turns out that that relationship, the stability of that relationship, the desire of the coral to host the little algae and the desire for the algae to live inside the coral is very temperature dependent. Okay. Very temperature sensitive. If that temperature's not there, what happens? If it gets too hot, what scientists think, the little algal cells start producing toxins. So it gets all very uncomfortable in there. And then eventually... Maybe they're getting tired of being peed on all the time. <laughs> that could be. No, just kidding. No. So, all right. So the, the, the algal, the plants start to produce toxins yes. when it gets too warm. And then what happens? And then the coral spits them out. The coral spits them out. Can't deal with you anymore. You're gone. You're gone. And it doesn't seem to occur uh, to the coral that uh, they uh, actually need these guys. What am I going to eat? Right. Yeah. I can add to the story. Here's something I... One of the few things I do know about coral biology is they turn white yes. because the color the coral gets is from the algae, right? Yeah, so that's correct. So when they spit the plant out, it turns white, but the coral's still alive at that point Yes. for a little while. The coral can survive on its fat stores. And that's why we call it coral bleaching, bleaching yeah. which is sort of a misnomer because it's not really bleached. It's just, no. lost, it's just lost its friend. It's lost its plant. So now it's white, still alive. Now what happens next? So the coral can live like that in a sort of lonely state <laughs> yeah. with, without, its, without its little plant cells. Right. Thank God that, that thing's gone that was putting that toxin out. But then after but a while, then, it's kind of realizing, then it starts going, I'm, I'm getting kind oh, of hungry. What am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah. Um, and we've actually um, been able to, during a bleaching event, we've actually been able to dive down and, and photograph the little coral animals that are still in there. And they're completely transparent now because they don't have any brown algae living in their cells. Mm, mm. Um, but they're still alive. Brown if, or red or pink, a lot of different green, colors, right? Yeah. Or green, yeah, yeah. If the water temperatures don't come down so that the algae can, can reoccupy mm -hmm. the, the, yeah. the coral. They die? Um, the coral will eventually starve to death. They just die. Yes. But, but if the temperatures get cooler, if the, the algae can, will come back. If the coral can hold on long enough. Long enough. And that's weeks, days, sort of weeks again. or days. That's yeah. weeks, sort of number Sometimes of weeks. Sometimes months. Sometimes even months. Okay. We've actually watched corals get thinner and thinner. And thinner. And you want to feed them probably, and right? And thinner, like, yes. <laughs> what can I do to help what you, but you I can't. What can I do? You can't no, do anything, it's right? It's too big. It's, it's too, too big. vast. I and, mean, and it you go to these places and the whole reef, as far yeah, as your eye can see, big. everywhere you go. It doesn't matter what the hotel does. White. It doesn't matter what the divers do. It doesn't matter what anybody does. It's a big planetary heating issue, right? So it's a problem. This phenomenon of coral heating and then the associated bleaching and the death is something that you've been studying. And I know you've come up with something called super reefs. And you've found some reefs that appear to be particularly resilient to this heating. And it's a very optimistic finding that, that there might be some reefs places. And it's a place you and I have both been in the Phoenix Islands, which is in the country of Kiribati. And it's spelled K-I-R-I-B-A-T-I. -I -I. It looks like Kiribati, mm -hmm. but it's actually pronounced Kiribati. And the reason it's that way is because when the missionaries came, they had one typewriter, and the typewriter didn't have an S. So they, they replaced every S sound with a T-I. But anyway, if, 
if our listeners oh, go out and, know that. that's that's the reason it's a strange reason and the weird spelling convention stuck you found within two of those groups some reefs that surprised you i want to tell you first why we found them when reefs bleach and die yeah it really looks like a graveyard and when you study coral reefs it's absolutely devastating to mm. watch reefs coral reefs that you've studied die. The temperatures are creeping up and up creeping and up, up and we're watching the CO2 emissions charts, which are not reversing, they're no. accelerating. Right. But at that time, we were also studying coral reefs in the Central Pacific. We weren't quite in the Phoenix Islands yet. We were a little bit to the west. Okay. And we knew from the history of temperatures in that region that these reefs were seeing, with El Nino, massive heat waves every three to seven years. Much more extreme heat than was killing corals in other mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. From a scientific perspective, it's fascinating to think of what are those corals doing there that enables them to, to grow despite being whacked, you know, every three to seven years with this massive heat. But then it also became a sort of light on the horizon for us, a sort of hope that if these corals can do it, maybe there are other coral reefs in the world that that might be able to survive what's coming as the what we call the baseline temperature goes up. So yep. the overall temperature of the ocean is just increasing like this one long sort of sort of straight line. Right. On top of that trend, there are episodes that we call we're calling heat waves. Right. Right. Where that are even associated yeah. with the El Nino. Yeah, yeah, now, El Nino has been around for forever. For as long as we know, yeah. Right? It's right. a natural oscillation of the climate right. system that causes parts of the ocean, and especially the Central Pacific and Eastern Pacific, to heat up. Right. But what's happening as the whole ocean, and this is down to 5,000 meters, down right. to the bottom, has, has warmed up, those heat waves are becoming bigger. Right. So every time an El Nino comes through, the extent, the, the, the sort of extent of the heat, the distribution of the heat and the, the, the size of the heat more anomaly. More and more, more and more. And it's killing it's corals. It's bigger. It's killing corals, but you're finding these pockets that aren't being killed. In the Central Pacific, where the Phoenix Islands is, right. and also where the Pacific Remote Marine National Monument is, there are coral reefs that are sitting in the bullseye of the El Nino. Bullseye, right, of this heat. And they yep. have been for as long as they've been in existence. Right. Dealing with these heat waves every three to seven years. You know, as coral reefs everywhere else were sort of taking the heat or, or, or feeling the heat and dying, we knew that these reefs in, in the bullseye of the El Nino were some of the most pristine, productive reefs on the planet. Those are the reefs that we are starting to call. Starting to call super reefs. Super reefs. I can tell you're a, li you're a little yes. hesitant because you're a scientist. You haven't, publi <laughs> you haven't published this yet. I'm leading you. I'm like leading the witness. <laughs> but, but these, the, the very encouraging because, you know, you look at the Great Barrier Reef that, that has not been exposed to this cyclical heating of the ocean, and, and they are used to a very stable temperature regime, and they're having a really hard time. Whereas there's this area of reefs that present hope, in my view. It's hope because these reefs are surviving this heating event, and as the planet is gonna to continue to get hotter, we know that, the models that scientists have put out, the climate convention knows that we're gonna be hotter. We finally found that there may be pockets of reefs 
that have been adapted kind of in a Darwinian way, mm. a Darwinian selection way to, to survive this heating. So that in my view, and, and I think yours and others, it, there, there's some hope here, and your research is providing that hope. And I found it very interesting how you determined this too. You would pour down, almost like going through the rings of a tree, and you can read the rings of a reef over time, right? And how far back did you go? as you looked at these these We've gone reefs. back about 200 years 200 now. years. So yeah. you went back almost to the beginning or pre-industrial oh, yes. revolution. Yeah, before you, it started warming. What did you see in those rings? You saw heating even back then, didn't you? Yes. So this heating yeah. in the Central Pacific, this periodic pulsing of the El Nino that we talked about has been going on for a while before we started emitting yes. all these gases. However, it appears to be getting more intense and the overall trend line on the planet is also increasing. So there's an anthropogenic impact happening now. These reefs that live in the Central Pacific that see extreme heat, they still feel it. They still respond to it. Yeah. We do see bleaching. And in 2002, 2003, El Nino, there was catastrophic mortality of right. corals in the Phoenix Islands because that was the biggest I saw it. <laughs> El Nino they ever saw. Yeah. But what we're seeing in the Central Pacific that might be different from other places is how these reefs cope with that. They have evolved a system over thousands of years to be able to come back and come back very quickly, much more quickly than other places. So they have what we call in the scientific community, this is actually a scientific term, resilience. Yes. So they have a high heat threshold to begin with, but when they do bleach, they have a capability to recover. You know, about when was 2002? How many years ago was that? 16 years, because yeah. my daughter was born then. The Phoenix Islands saw heat that they'd never seen before, just like the Great Barrier Reef in 2015. And they took a beating. And when they took another yeah. beating, a similar beating in 2015, they were like... They came back even... It was like, they hey, were like, hey, man, I, I can it. deal with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have engaged in the policy side of this. And the country that we mentioned earlier, Kiribati, they own these reefs. And you have now taken your science that you've hard won diving in the Central Pacific, and you are now coming to the United Nations. You're going to the country that owns these, and you're presenting the information that you've learned to see what that country wants to do about it. And I want to play you some, some sounds. And this is from just last week. <laughs> this was some dancing at the Kiribati Embassy, yeah. which uh, you participated in, and by the way, you're not a bad dancer, where we took the information and brought it to the culture that owns these foods. And this is really how the world works now. We've got to bring knowledge, we've got to bring public awareness, and we've got to make sure that the country that owns these reefs uh, has the information, and they can do with what they want. You know, you've spent a lot of time with the people of Kiribati. What are they like? Tell me what your impression is of the Kiribati culture. I'm speaking now not as a scientist. That's right, no scientist. Just, just a human being. Yeah. Human. I want to bring this back to people now. I feel that when I go to Kiribati, even Tuvalu, or yeah. other places in the Central Pacific, I have a sense of belonging that is very difficult to get in the Western culture, I think. Huh. There's such a strong sense of community and yeah. that I think is in the young children. Mm -hmm. 
up to the oldest people that just draws you in and, mm. and you're so welcome. There's Good so dancers. much fun and <laughs> so much la laughing. But most of all, I, I, I think it's a sense of belonging, a sense of community. For example, when I participated in one meeting where there was a lot of dancing, I noticed that everybody dances. Everybody. Everybody dances. And you're a good dancer, the too. The kids dance. The teenagers dance. The young women dance. The older women dance. Yep. The elders in the community play a very important role. They're very much respected. Everybody has a place. Mm. Maybe this isn't what everybody else feels, but I feel <laughs> when I'm there that I have a place, too. I can't think of a better place to leave this than, than right there, unless you want to do some dancing for us. <laughs> <laughs> we could do that but uh, no thank you Anne. i know uh, you're out there looking for other super reefs there are other super reefs out there and we're starting to create a model of where other super reefs might be found and we're going out and we're can i go with you <laughs> I hope so. Okay, we're going to go together. <laughs> also, I hope you've read my book. It just came out, Soul of the Sea in the Age of, of the course, Algorithm. yes. I've read it three yeah. times. Three times. Good. <laughs> All right. And maybe we can write a book together on the next round about saving the ocean because uh, we need more scientists like you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you.